Yeah, well, let me tell you something, animal. You know, you're, you're, you know, you, you play the drums so good, man. You take the sticks and you really lay down some great percussion. You know what I'm talking about? Percussion! Wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lou, yeah. you sort of have to consider animal as your basic primitive man. You, know, oh, yeah. you have to know how to talk to him. Oh, yeah? Well, how do you tell a man that his work with the sticks really is down? I mean, he can put some soul in the bowl, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's easy. Yeah. Animal! Good drummer! Good drummer! Good drummer! Good drummer. Good drummer. Good drummer. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host and certified one of the groovy, groovy people, Nick Jackson. Nick, are you ready to dive into this? Oh, I'm absolutely ready to dive in. Ready to get back at it? We had a week off. We did. You feeling all right? Uh, ups and downs as always, but it's good to be back. A couple of great episodes tonight? Oh, yeah. Very easy on the ears. A couple of very musical episodes tonight. Two guests that are actually kind of similar, mm-hmm. I would say. This is a feat of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and then lunaticdaring.com, where you will find our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. Uh, also, a little special shout out today to uh, Muppet Wiki, who tweeted out a little thing about all the great Muppet podcasts that are going on right now, including us, which is nice. So you should check out uh, Muppet Wiki on Twitter. They've got a whole list of uh, other Muppet podcasts that are doing similar things to what we're doing, completely different things to what we're doing. You know, everybody out there just having a good time, enjoying the works of Henson. Watched them with my kids. Uh, They really enjoy the roller skating. And uh, yeah, so let's get started. Let's get things started. I knew the name Lou Rawls, and I now know that he was one of the groovy, groovy people, but uh, I don't know much about him. He's actually, I, there's one song of his that I've heard a lot growing up, but he's, there's like this amorphous Four Tops Temptations, they were never, I don't think they're ever a super group, but there's like a, a stable of songs that have probably been sung by both groups or a number of other things, and you start to have a stronger association with a song than you do with an individual group, or at least right. I did when I was growing up. And Lou Rawls fit into that. I didn't know him by name, but I've heard a good number of his songs. Lou Rawls was born in Chicago in December of 1933. He was raised primarily by his grandmother on the south side. He began singing in the Greater Mount Olive Baptist Church Choir when he was seven, where he would meet Sam Cooke and Curtis Mayfield, two other very big names, obviously, in the, the soul and R&B tradition. Uh, he would actually end up working with Sam Cook a fair amount. Uh, he graduated from Dunbar Vocational High School and sang briefly in a group called the Teenage Kings of Harmony with Cook. He would later replace Cook with the Highway QCs when Cook departs from Chicago to join the Soulsters in Los Angeles. Rawls would later follow Cook to Los Angeles where he would join a group called the Pilgrim Travelers. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home Swing low, sweet chariot Coming for to carry me home He would 
sing with the Pilgrim Travelers for a little while, but he would ultimately end up enlisting in 1955 as a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. He made a total of 26 jumps. Korea? I think that would have been the Korea era, yeah. He left three years later, his last rank was as a sergeant, at which point he rejoined the Pilgrim Travelers and started singing again. He would be in a car crash in 1958. He was actually pronounced dead before arriving at the hospital. He stayed in a coma for... Yowzers. Sorry? Yowzers. Yeah. Uh, he stayed in a coma for about five and a half days. It would take him a year to recover fully, but he wouldn't regain his memory for the first several months following that. This was obviously a life-changing experience because it could have very easily ended there. The following year, 1959, he performed at the Hollywood Bowl. His first two major singles were Love, Love, Love and Walking for Miles, which were both released on Sardi Records, which was owned by Herb Alpert. Since you left me, I've been walking for miles. Oh, baby, where can you be? In 1962, he would shift to a different label and sign a contract with Capitol Records. He sang backing vocals on Bring It On Home To Me and That's Where It's At, both written by Sam Cooke. Um, and those are some of Cooke's bigger, bigger hits as well. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I last when you left, but now I know I only heard. He released a jazz album called Stormy Monday with Les McCann in 1962, followed by Black and Blue and Tobacco Road. I grew up in a rusty shack. All I owned was a hanging on my back. Lord knows how I loathe this place called Tobacco Road. He also had something of an acting career. His first acting credit was in a Western series called The Big Valley. It starred Barbara Stanwyck, Linda Evans, and... The six billion dollar man himself, Lee, Lee Majors. Lee Majors. Yeah. Was it six million or six billion? Six million. And the six million dollar man himself, Lee Majors. Adjusted for inflation, it's probably a billion. Probably, yeah. His next album, Live, would be certified gold in 1966. He would win his first Grammy for best R&B vocal performance for the single Dead End Street. Uh, they say this is a beat town but I live in the poorest part I know I'm on a dead end street in a city without a heart he performed the first ever evening of the Monterey Jazz Festival in 1967. He would appear on a seg in a segment during the first season of Sesame Street, which makes sense given one of the sketches tonight, but I'll, I'll get back to that in a little bit. Here's a song I'm gonna sing, a song that you can sing, the story of the ABCs, after a while I want you to join me, A, B, C, D. He left Capitol Records for MGM in 1971 and released a single, Natural Man. Uh, he also covered She's Gone for Bell Records, the Hollow Notes single, in 1974. And then in 1976, he releases the album All Things in Time, which includes what I would argue is his best hit, or his biggest hit, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. You'll never find 
It'll take the end of all time Someone to understand you Like I do It's of that same sort of Barry White era of very slow soul. He definitely had the ability to go low. Oh yeah, absolutely. Following this, that he gets his appearance on The Muppet Show. So, I was technically born in the 80s, but I am not really a child of the 80s. I've got a vague recollection of the idea of telethons. I don't think I've really seen any. I've never seen a telethon? I don't think so. Um, In 1980, Lou began the Lou Rawls Parade of Stars telethon. The name would change to An Evening of Stars 1998. Charity that they were trying to benefit was the United Negro College Fund. And those would continue up until basically his death. He appeared. Never seen a telethon. Sorry. You never seen a telethon. I've seen them referenced in shows. I've never actually seen a proper telethon. Didn't even watch the the nine eleven one with uh, Kanye and uh, Mike Myers. I I thought that was TRL. Was that a telethon where Kanye said that George Bush doesn't care about black people? No, sorry, it was a Hurricane Katrina telethon. Oh. The destruction of the spirit of the people of Southern Louisiana and Mississippi may end up being the most tragic loss of all. George Bush doesn't care about black people. All a telethon is is a bunch of celebrities on television doing their thing while you call in and donate money. It's just live aid. Just, okay, cool. <laughs> yes, the the famous Kanye, Mike Myers moment with... The look on Mike Myers' face. With, with one of the greatest looks I've ever seen in television <laughs> history is Mike Myers not knowing what to do in that moment. To it's be not fair, the, he definitely didn't sign up for that. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Mike isn't offended. He's not angry. He is stunned. To this day, it is still probably my favorite Kanye moment, the side of late registration. Go ahead. But he he also had small roles in the film Leaving Las Vegas and Blues Brothers 2000. He was in Leaving Las Vegas? I've got a lot of blind spots, Chad. No, no, it's not that. I was I was curious that he was in Leaving Las Vegas. Oh, he was, I think he played a, a taxi driver or something. His final appearance would be on the 2005-2006 telethon. He'd been diagnosed with lung cancer that was spreading to his brain and ultimately came to that on January 6, 2006 at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A. During the course of his life, he released over 60 albums, and he was still recording right up to the end. This guy was like a, a powerhouse. I didn't really see much in terms of scandal. He was married a few times, but the closest thing you've got to a dark mark, or at least in terms of what I was able to find, was the near-death experience. Every time I've seen him, he seems like a really nice guy. He seems very affable in this. He seems very cool. He feels very 70s. Oh, yeah. He seemed very easygoing and fun, and uh, yeah, he's got a cool voice, and he just seems like he's there to have a good time. That's interesting. Yeah, like I said, I didn't, I didn't know anything about him in uh, Cook. Bring It On Home to Me is one of the best songs I think ever recorded, So, especially if you've ever heard the live version. I don't know if I have. Live at the Harlem Club, so he's playing in this small little room. This is going to be a shocker. Sam Like the Ladies. I don't know if you knew that. I, I feel like that might have been his downfall. but Turns out it may have, but he would like sing to women in the, in the crowd you know, and stuff. And I think Bring It On Home To Me gets a little more sexual energy and becomes a little more primal when you're actually singing it live. I'll give you jewelry. I'll give you some of that money too. But listen, oh, that ain't all. That ain't all Sam will do for you. All you gotta do is bring it to me. Bring that good mother baby. Bring it all home to me. I gotta take you this for this is important. Listen to me. So, The Muppet Show, episode 215, featuring guest star Lou Rawls. 
was recorded between November 1st and 3rd, 1977. It would premiere in the UK on December 16th of the same year, and March 3rd of the following year in the United States. It was directed by Philip Casson. Lou Rawls! Oh, Lou Rawls! 24 seconds to curtain, Mr. Rawls! Thank you, Scooter! So we, we begin our cold open, and Sam the Eagle, the arbiter of all that is class and taste... Mr. Rawls, I, I wanted to tell you that I greatly respect your talent, and I followed your career from its very beginning. Thank you, Sam. Knowing Sam, that's probably something that needs to be taken with a massive grain of salt, but he, he means well. But he, of course... It's just too bad it has to end here. And the Muppet Get Out parody, I can absolutely see Sam being the person that just screams, get out. Like, just sub in Sam for Lakeith Stanfield. Just, <laughs> get out. It seems like Lou's got a permanent smile on his face. There is an aspect of the way that Lou's persona is is presented here. And I, I don't, as I say this, I don't want it to seem like it's a backhanded compliment. It's not. It just seems like he's genuinely happy to be there. Or anywhere. So we get to the Muppet Show theme. Uh, green smoke comes out of Gonzo's horn, which we saw earlier in uh, episode 208. Both of these are a little weird this week. This one's a repeat, but the second one, the one in the second episode is even stranger. We'll talk about it. We we kind of get slipped into what our, I, I guess is effectively going to be our, our backstage story. Fozzie's mm-hmm. supposed to do his bit while on rollerblade or roller skates, but he doesn't really know how to use roller skates. So... So it's going to be hard for the, for this episode to describe this because it's such a visual thing. But just understand that a good chunk of the laughs in this episode come from Fozzie Bear just floating through the frame. <laughs> just rolling through the frame. Now, Frank does an amazing job. Is that look of mild panic? The mild panic, but also just the movement. I don't know if he's actually on some kind of dolly or something to create that smooth movement. You know, I'm guessing probably. Seems having like a small cart of some sort. Yeah, probably yeah, some kind of hand cart. But Fozzie on roller skates is going to be a big thing. That's going to be hard for us to necessarily get across. But yeah. uh, he's just he's not he's not very good at it. And it's basically going to throw the whole show out of whack, like the the scheduled show out of whack. I will say I feel like we haven't seen we haven't seen as much of Fozzie this season, and we we see a lot of him on these two episodes. That seems to be happening where we get like two piggy heavy piggy episodes back to back or two heavy Fozzie episodes back to back or two heavy gonzo episodes back to back you know this seems to happen every once in a while due to Fozzie not really being able to perform we slide right into lou rawls singing groovy people with a set of muppets called the sleaze brothers i don't think we've seen the sleaze brothers before have we no i didn't put them down as new characters because they're just a bunch of whatnots Mm -hmm. they will appear again the first thing I'd like to point out is that before they come out, all I could think is, where is Don Cornelius? Hey there, and welcome aboard. You're right on time for another super slick ride on the Soul Train. We'll get rolling with the exciting stylistics right after this communication. Lou comes out looking like he's ready for Soul Train. And I don't just mean his outfit, and I don't just mean the color of his skin. I mean the backdrop, the microphone, everything looked like (laughs) we were about to start an episode of Soul Train. So the thing about that backdrop and the thing that sort of caught me off guard was, more than anything, it made me think of The Wiz. Like, specifically when they're down in the subway and trying to get through New York in that weird 70s post-apocalyptic New York vision. Yeah, yeah. God, that that movie's so strange. It, it really is. 
the fact that it's an R&B remake of The Wizard of Oz is actually the least strange thing about it. But first, to get things started, here's our own Fozzie Bear, who will perform for you tonight on roller skates. Oh, man, I think the act needs just a bit more rehearsal. <laughs> well, uh, so much for the opening number. Uh, now we suddenly arrive at guest star time. Oh, <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Lou Rawls. I like groovy people. I like to be around the groovy, groovy people, yes. I don't like nobody that's got an ego. No, I believe this song is off that album you were talking about. All Things in Time. This was a number seven hit. It is. It's it's a nice like the thing is, Lou's got a real smooth voice. And okay. so there's a there's a good chance that whatever he's singing, you're just gonna relax a little bit. He was nice and easy. Um he had the the Sleaze Sleaze brothers. I mean, they're fine. Like I said, they're just weird looking mutton. Oh, this is the question I wanted to ask about this. Do you think they use the whatnots to not take away from the guest star, as opposed to some of our main characters coming out? Uh like, this leaves the focus kind of squarely on him. Maybe, but we see him with the mayhem later. Oh, we do. I just mean for the number, is all. Like, him coming out doing doing what, at the time, was his big hit single. Mm. And doing it with these uh, kind of four generic Muppets. They, these could have easily been members of the mayhem, right? Mm. But, I don't know. I just thought maybe it was to not take away too much from the guest star, their first number at least, to make it clearly a Lou Rawls number. Give me some groovy people. I'm talking about the groovy, groovy people, yeah. Groovy, 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 oh, I like groovy people, well. It's a fine number, but then we uh, we go backstage again, and like the, the crux of the show on top of Fozzie not being able to handle the roller skates is that everything is being done out of order, so no one really has enough of a chance to prepare what they need to prepare. Yeah. Um, which I actually really liked as a conceit. But Scooter arrives backstage to ask Kermit who goes on next, uh, whether it would be Fozzie or the newsman. So what happens now? A news flash or Fozzie's roller skating act? <laughs> I'll tell the newsman he's on. They really leaned on that classic comedy trope of someone rolls out a screen or flies out a screen and then you hear a crash off screen. They did that numerous times with Fozzie. <laughs> I mean, Kermit doesn't really pay his performers, but I have to hope that they've got real good medical insurance. And so we see the newsman, the poor, poor newsman. <laughs> yeah. Dateline, New York. Medical science has been baffled by a sudden epidemic of the rare disease malarditis. The illness strikes very quickly and causes its victim to turn into a duck. Malarditis? That's the silliest thing I ever... You can you can see where it's going. The uh, poor and put-upon newsman who gets turned into a duck. And now, Veterinarian's Hospital. The continuing story of a quack who has gone to the dogs. From there, we shift to Veterinarian's Hospital. Yeah, this is a good one. It is, and it was actually something that I, I wasn't expecting because they... Well, first, they completely break the fourth wall and ask who the announcer is, but secondly... They go through all the same bits again with, like, one change. No, they, they do their whole sketch, which is already pretty funny. On to the next patient. What's this? He was here a minute ago. 
Oh, wow, this is happening a lot lately. What is? Dr. Bob is losing his patience. <laughs> That's untrue. I never lose my patience. What about the patient you accidentally fed nitroglycerin to? <laughs> oh, you're my lost. <laughs> but I found him again. Where? In Iowa, Minnesota, North and South Dakota. No. <laughs> that was him all over. Oh. <laughs> He lost his patience. Yeah, and then Jerry Nelson's voice comes in to say... So, once again, Dr. Bob has come to nothing. Tune in next time when you will hear him say... Hey, who are you? Who? You. You know, the voice we keep hearing in here? I'm the announcer. I'm the guy who says, And now, Veterinarian's Hospital, the continuing story of a quack who has gone to the dog. And that triggers them. <laughs> so they go back to one. You even see Bob, like, fixing his hair. Like Rolf, like gets himself straight. He puts the blanket on the on the like the sheet on the gurney where it was where it was when the sketch started, and they do the whole sketch over again. Well, on to the next patient. What's this? He was here a minute ago. Oh wow, this is happening a lot lately. What is? Doctor Bob is losing his patience. <laughs> Untrue. I never lose my patience. What about the one you fed nitroglycerin to? Him, no. <laughs> my lost. But I found him again. Oh, where? In Maryland, Virginia, North and South Carolina. <laughs> That's him it's all over. <laughs> my my kids halfway through were like, are, are they really going to do the whole thing again? I mean, they always break the fourth wall a little bit in Vets Hospital because they often look up like they hear the announcer. That's true. But like this, I think this is the first time they've directly invoked him, though. Oh, yeah. No, they, there's a couple of I, I know, at least in some episodes, I don't know if they're ones we've seen or ones later where like, yeah, they'll yell something at the announcer at the end or something. Hmm. Um, but this is like genuinely having a conversation with them. And it's it's very funny that they replay it faster. Yeah. And they just he has that nitroglycerin joke. And he lists uh, different states both times. From there, we, I think we make a quick stop by Sesame Street. Yeah, wait, this is a new location. Don't know what it is. Uh, Muppet Wiki says it's outside the theater, mm-hmm. which I guess, but there's like a it's like there's like there's a fire escape? It looks like, maybe it's just the combination of the external setting with Lou's perpetual smile or something, but it, it made it seem like it was a Sesame Street bit. Everything including like him coming into the foreground and like, descending from steps or something it's a new location i think it's supposed to be outside out back maybe the roof even i don't know i don't know where it would have a fire escape lou meets floyd uh, and floyd's walking his drummer which is animal and i mean we've both lived in san francisco so the context of this seems probably different from what they were going for but you know to each their own Yeah. But Lou's trying to pay Animal a compliment because he's a big fan of Animal's drumming. You're, you're, you know, you, you play the drums so good, man. You take the sticks and you really lay down some great percussion. You know what I'm talking about? He doesn't speak English? Is that the idea? I don't know. I, I think there's just some sort of an auditory processing issue where you've got to simplify things for him. Got to get it down to its core elements. Floyd is Rocket and Animal's group at this point, effectively. He even describes him as a basic primitive man. Yeah, because Lou keeps trying to talk to him like like a groovy dude in the 70s would talk to him, right? And mm-hmm. it's not registering with Animal very much. Yeah, and Floyd's like, man, you got to talk to him because he's a basic primitive man. Oh, just going to let you know, the title of this episode will come from this scene. I haven't figured out which line it is. I don't know yet, but the title of this episode is probably coming from this scene. Hey, I can dig up. Well, how do you tell a man that his work with the sticks really is down? I mean, he can put some soul in the bowl, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's easy. Yeah. Lou makes the comment about Animal being able to put soul in the bowl. Floyd literally, literally translates it to... Animal! Uh, 
Good drama! And Animal's able to process that because it's three syllables. Lou tries to invite Animal to go on tour with him. Floyd worries that he wouldn't be able to get a chain long enough for that. <laughs> I guess the, the bit just sort of ends with uh, a... It's a second too late or a second too early warning for Lou to not let Animal chase cars. I mean, you say that, what's going to happen? I mean... <laughs> oh, yeah. Come on, Floyd, just let me discuss it with you man to man, you know? Man to man? This dude don't know Animal. <laughs> Okay, Lou, and there's his chain, but All right. uh, could I just ask one favor? Yeah, baby. Yeah, don't let him chase any cars, okay? Don't let him chase any cars. <laughs> Floyd thinks that's probably, uh, it probably cost him the gig. Yeah, probably. And again, like, we've had Fozzie kind of going back and forth out of, out of frame with the roller skates. We're getting the same thing here with Lou being dragged across the frame with Animal. How you enter and exit the frame can be just as funny as what you do in the frame. And you see a lot of that in this. Screw the arch. Screw the stage. We're, we've got this square. This mm-hmm. four by three, almost square. Let's, uh, let's use it. I'm almost always happy to see Animal, as long as Tina Horn isn't on the show. We got another scene with Animal later that might be a problem. but uh, Yeah. We go backstage again, and the Swedish chef is upset, if not articulate. Oh, man, I just remembered how funny this episode is. It's <laughs> great. Because we go straight to this. His act was supposed to be in the second half of the show, and he isn't prepared for it. Yeah. And they're telling him that he's got to go on now, which, having been in that position with different jobs, is an absolute pet peeve where it's like, I was told to be ready at this time. You've abbreviated my timeline. You're going to like whatever I put out there. Scooter explains that due to Fozzie's roller skating, Chef has to go on. Yep. And, of course... Fozzie comes skating back in. He's almost got it, Nick. He's almost got it. He likes the idea of of roller skating. Great moment, though. Great stunt, or at least great performance as he goes down the stairs. Mm -hmm. Right? Because Fozzie goes down the backstage stairs to the the back door of the Muppet Show. Really great performance by Frank. You see it coming, but it's really Mm -hmm. funny. And then they push him on stage. I've got to give the chef kudos because the chef isn't stuck with them. They're stuck with the chef. (laughs) Yeah. Chef decides that he's going to demonstrate how to cook frog's legs with Robin as the dish. (laughs) And Kermit runs out immediately (laughs) and says, cut, cut. And Robin tells him not to say cut, to say stop. So the first thing that happens, right, is Scooter and Kermit push the chef out onto the stage. The chef comes in, and the, the song's already halfway over. So the chef comes in, he picks up a couple of, like, egg beaters, right? A couple of whisks. And, like, does the second half of the song. And then instead of throwing them over his shoulder like he normally does, he throws them off stage at Kermit and Scooter. <laughs> he, like, picks them up. He's like, eh. What I found hysterical, though, is, like, so he's being forced to do this. Robin's under there. He's doing this to get back at Kermit. But then that's, he would have had to prep it ahead of time, though. So how did he get Robin under this glass? When did he have time? There is a good chance that the Swedish chef was anticipating that Kermit would tell him to go on anyway. Yeah. And if Kermit gave him a break, then him removing Robin from that plate would just be an extra part of prep. But if he has to go on... It's like, if I go, go, the little one goes with me. Mm -hmm. My daughters were um, traumatized. (laughs) I'm sorry. They keep... We've watched The Great Muppet Caper. We've watched mm-hmm. The Great Muppet Caper together. They really enjoyed it. They want to watch the Muppet movie. We want to have a good night where we sit down and watch the Muppet movie, and we totally will. However, the plot of that movie, not to spoil an episode of the podcast that'll come out, I don't know, sometime this fall, a big part of that movie involves the bad guy trying to get Kermit's frog's legs. Mm-hmm. I don't think my girls still understand that people eat frog's legs, and they were horrified when little Robin is in her thing and the chef pulls out a knife and literally grabs Robin's leg. And is about ready to saw it off when Kermit comes running in. This is a funny episode, man. It's really good. Somebody, anybody, hey! 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 
haven't had an at the dance sketch. It's maybe been a few episodes, maybe. Yeah, but we we go in. I, I guess Jaws was recent enough that uh, people would make a reference to it. Yeah, it would have been three years old at that point. Most of the the Muppets we see, we see the Frackle, we see a couple of other semi-familiar faces, but we don't really see any A or B list Muppets until Gonzo shows up and asks if... Excuse me, are you the monster who swallowed my harmonica? (laughs) Yeah, they're all like monster jokes this time. Continuing this trend of having at the dance have a theme. Mm which we saw in the very first episode. Um, and this time it's basically all monsters. And I'm going to I'm gonna correct myself. Jaws was 1975. I know that. So it's technically, I guess, two years. My mm. film geek friends would uh, string me up for that. So. For saying three years. No, it was two years. I, I know it was 75. My daughter keeps wanting to see Jaws, and I'm like, <laughs> Why? Well, she watched like 15 minutes of it with me. I was just watching it. She came in. She was seven at the time. And she comes in and she's watching a little bit of Jaws. And then it gets to the scene where they go investigate the boat and there's the corpse in the boat. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew it was coming and I'm like, honey, you might want to leave. And she's like, no, I'm fine. Honey, you might want to leave. No, I'm fine. The guy, like the bloated corpse shows up in the boat underwater and she screams and runs out of the room. But she still wants to watch Jaws still. (laughs) Like it gets worse. You're doing a lot better than, like, my dad was just like, you're going to watch Candyman and like it because I'm not getting a sitter. I would love to sit down and watch more movies with them and try to get their tolerance up a little bit, I would say. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to do that. <laughs> so. See how they handle the Dark Crystal, I guess. Because Yeah, they've seen some of the show, actually. I'm thinking of the original movie, though, because I remember that was like Nightmare Fuel when I was a kid. I've decided that the benchmark is going to be The Secret of Nim. Fair. If we ever watch The Secret of Nim and they enjoy it, then green light. Mm-hmm. If they only get about 45 minutes into it and then hate me forever, then I'll know I know where we stand. <laughs> it's a kid's movie. Sure it is. <laughs> you tell Nicodemus that. Uh-huh. So from there, this next bit actually threw me off a little bit. We have Kermit singing Ukulele Lady uh, yep. to Miss Piggy, who sits in a crescent moon and a grass skirt. I love to linger in the moonlight on Honolulu Bay. Fond memories cling to me by moonlight, although I'm far away. It's got a, a very strong Hawaiian theme, but Miss Piggy's out there in a bikini. Yeah. And there have been so many jokes made at Miss Piggy's, the expense of Miss Piggy's weight or figure, but she looks pretty svelte. She's feeling good, you know? She's got a bigger part in the show now, you know? Maybe she can afford a trainer. Caught me off guard a little bit, though, because there's so many jokes that have been made at the expense of her weight. And there will be more. Our ukulele lady is a standard from 1925, written by Gus Kahn and Richard Whiting. It's been covered by Arlo Guthrie, Bing Crosby, and Bette Midler. I'm not so far from college that I haven't heard an obnoxious amount of ukuleles, but I don't think I've ever actually heard the song. It bothers me less than a lot of the things that I've heard on ukulele. (laughs) That's the college experience. Being annoyed by people playing stringed instruments at parties. It's true. I hate Wonderwall. I hate Wonderwall so much. (laughs) Oasis definitely has better songs. This was a fun number. It was weird. Scooter comes out to sing with them, but then it's Scooter and a whatnot. So that whatnot seems like it makes more sense in the 80s. Like the the sort of done up orange hair. It's not quite a fraggle, but like the combination of like the bright hair and the sunglasses made it seem like a surf punk from the 80s. I mean, I guess Fast Times was like 79, but... Fast Times is 82. Was it? Okay. Yeah, I didn't mind the song, but I didn't like get into it either. It seems like Kermit is okay playing a paramour of Piggy as long as they're doing a scene or a sketch. As long as they're doing a number. He just doesn't want it backstage. This next one, however. Yeah, so... We've seen this before. It was a little... 
it was a little weird, but also I live like where I live in San Francisco. I think there's a woman with an emotional support pick. She walks it randomly and I'm sure that it's a loving and affectionate relationship, even though the pig's being kept inside of an apartment. Pigs are like dogs, man. I guess. I don't, I've always associated them with, like, needing farmland. Maybe. But they're, they're as smart as dogs. I believe that. Like, I, I don't know enough to really have a problem with it. It's just something that's out of the ordinary, so you're going to take more notice of it. Any discussion about the uh, qualities of pigs takes me back to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Fair. I wouldn't go so far as to call a dog filthy, but they're definitely dirty. But dogs got personality. Personality goes the wrong way. Uh, so by that rationale, if a pig had a better personality, he'd cease to be a filthy animal. Is that true? Well, we have to be talking about one charming mother pig. I mean, he had to be ten times more charming than that Arnold on Green Acres, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we've got Link. Yeah, so this is the UK spot, we should point out. This is the UK spot, which right. I think America was spared on this one. There are a couple of things going on here, though, because we've got Link doing a solo song while holding a live piglet. Mm-hmm. The song is Sunny Boy from the 1928 film The Singing Fool. I'm up on my knees, Sunny Boy. You are only three, Sunny Boy. Um, which was a film that had both silent segments and scenes with synchronized sound. Um, it was sung by Al Jolson originally, but the, the thing about it is there is a trope, and I don't know the proper name for it. Usually in the scope of an author's career or a musician's career or a filmmaker's career, there will be one point at which they're struggling with the concept of fatherhood and somehow that makes it into their art. Right. And the idea of Link using this UK spot for that with his child that is clearly not drugged. Uh-huh. It's just, like, I, I just want to know more of the story behind Link deciding to be like, Kermit, I could use some time to sing tonight, right? I've got some things I'm trying to process. I say this with no knowledge whatsoever, other than with no specific knowledge whatsoever, but just general knowledge of filmmaking. And again, just like with the Rolf, this because this scene is exactly like a Rolf with the puppy. Mm. That, that pig's totally tranked. Yeah. It's hard because like, I don't necessarily approve of that. It's also just how you would do it. It also probably isn't, like, super harmful for the pig to give him a couple Benadryl just so he'll sit there. But uh, I think that pig is definitely artificially sleepy a little bit, or else I don't think they would sit in the lap of Link while he sang a song, you know? No, absolutely not. Especially when he threatened to turn it into a... When he says it might grow up to be a football? Mm-hmm. What was that? <laughs> it's okay. He kissed it after that to make it better. Son, when you grow up, you know you might be a halfback. Or you might even be a fullback. Or... If you really persevere, you might grow up and be a football. That's the exact opposite of lucky, but Link is stupid. I found it actually kind of uncomfortable. Fair. One, the pig is just kind of staring at you. I said, I like Link a lot. I don't necessarily like him when he's being sentimental. And I guess maybe part of the joke is like Link is bad at being sentimental, but mm-hmm. didn't it didn't quite work for me. I thought it was a little awkward. The sooner we get away from these live animal things, the better, in my opinion. So Yeah. From there we go... To again, we I feel like we haven't had a proper talk spot. We haven't all season. No, this is like the first one. We've got Kermit and Lou. Kermit asks Lou, "Hey, hey, listen, Lou, could you tell us what is, what is the secret of singing jazz like you do?" Well, Kermit, all you have to do really is just kind of lay back, you know, and lay down some golden tones with soul and style. Sure, you just kind of lay back and lay down some golden tones with soul and style. He, he explains it in very relativistic terms, and Kermit tries. 
basically what he says is, well, Kermit, in order to sing jazz like me, you just got to be me. Jim has a very funny moment, you know, where Kermit tries to lay back and relax and doesn't quite come across the same. Uh, Lou explains that he, he can't just sing because the lighting isn't right and he doesn't have a band. Um, the atmosphere is all wrong, right? And all of that factors in. And Kermit, of course, arranges for all of that to, to change. And we get to see Dr. Chief and the Electric Mayhem come out to help Lou sing Bye Bye Blackbird. He doesn't arrange for it to happen. He snaps his fingers and they appear out of midair. True. Apparently Kermit's a wizard now. Hey, Kermit, this is an inspiration and an open invitation, you know, for some soulful syncopation. You hey, huh? does that mean something good? Yes, it means let's sing. He's a frog that wears many hats. He's a wizard, Harry. Which was a standard that was published in 1924. This kind of really showcases his scatting. Yeah. That's something he's going to share with our second guest star. Part of his his uh, arsenal was was scatting. Goodbye, bye, you jive turkey. You. Oh, really? No wonder you can love all understand me. Oh, what hard luck stories they all each and everybody hands me. Make my bed light light, but I might not get home tonight. Kind of sounds silly. How would you describe scatting? It's just kind of jazz improv with your mouth, right? There is a specific word outside of scatting for. I don't think, like, it's, um, I don't want to say nonverbal sounds, but, uh, sounds that would come out of your mouth that aren't words in a musical context, and I can't think of what it is. Was this the one where he introduced all of the different members of the Mayhem, or is that a... That's in, that's in the next episode. That's the next one. They all do go around, they all get a chance to, like, do their little scat, and then, like, Zoot's saxophone sings? Mm-hmm. In a very weird moment. <laughs> um, well, Zoot's described as weird in the first place, but... Well, yeah. Well, Zoot, Zoot has a very strange moment in the second episode. We're going to get to the bottom of that one. I don't know how. I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of that. We're going to mention it, though. It's good to see the Mayhem play with the guest star. Like, any Mayhem music bit is going to be solid, just because it's the Mayhem. But when you have a guest... Like, even when Rita came in, she was great, but that was more of a comedic bit than it was a musical one. And seeing musicians just be able to sort of groove with the Mayhem is always something that I find really rewarding. From there, we uh, go backstage again, where it seems like Fozzie's finally got the hang of things. He's he's trying to explain that roller skating is actually very, very difficult. And of course, as he's doing this, the Swedish chef is or gliding around backstage with his own skates. Which I think this is just the Swedish chef being really salty about the fact that they moved his bit around and then canceled it. Welcome again to Muppet Labs, where the future is being made today. Who's introducing his latest invention, the nuclear-powered shaver. Which, there was a period of time when uh, people wanted nuclear-powered everything. Yeah. It was the way of the future, but I remember I, I can't remember the proper name for it, but there was uh, a children's teeth experiment to show why a lot of it was a potential risk just to see if they're irradiated, which is just a terrifying thought. We've got a nuclear-powered shaver and a lead helmet to protect Beaker's hair from nuclear fallout. And poor Beaker. <laughs> He's scared before it even starts. Of course. But the uh, the weight of the helmet causes his head to sort of go down, and he kind of... He gets, he gets away from the more negative aspect of the nuclear shaver. He sinks so far down his body, he doesn't have a face to shave anymore. Now Beaker doesn't need a shave. <laughs> From there, our uh, favorite bear finally takes the stage mm -hmm. um, and performs funny jokes in figure eights. 
for about as long as it takes for him to fall off the stage. <laughs> How about that? I haven't told one joke and I'm rolling already. Uh, whoa, whoa. Uh, 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 not bad on a 10 cent pair of skates, huh? Speaking of cheap skates. Uh, nice blend, Fuzzy. Thank you, Fuzzy. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's gotten better. Practice makes perfect. Practice makes, you know, tolerable. This is always going to end in tragedy, though. Yeah. He lands a couple of jokes. Statler and Waldorf have a good dig. Hey, this is a great way for Fozzie to do his material. Yeah, a moving target is harder to hit. Uh, yeah, and he gets a little cocky and then ends up rolling his butt off the stage in a way that uh, absolutely, positively, everyone could have predicted. We move back to see our buddy Lou. Backed by the mayhem again. Our closing number here. And he sings the song, You're the One, to Miss Piggy. That is the second song of this evening to be dedicated to Miss Piggy. Yeah. I've been all over the world And I've seen all kinds of girls But baby, let me tell you that you're the one This song was also from his then most recent album And it was... His career, I don't know if it really dipped necessarily, because he, he started getting hits not too long before this, but this was when he really, really busted out. It was a big album for him. Oh, yeah. It's like kind of at a dinner, it's almost like a dinner theater. Like, it's almost like a big band setup, right? Like, you would see an old, yeah, an old supper club. I, w- I would say that's a fair thing. Like, you, I could absolutely see uh, Lou moving through the crowd and, like, dancing around tables and... You could replace him with Al Jolson or Glenn Miller, you know, like it's that type of look, you know, this kind of big band jazz when you hear a look with the with the risers and piggies at this little romantic table for two. But you have and you have several layers. I did want to mention, though, amongst the background characters, so you have the mayhem, but you also have a few other whatnots back there playing instruments because, you know, the mayhem doesn't have a huge horn section. There's a there's like a trio or a couple of horn players in the back playing trumpet. One of them is a whatnot with dark shades on. Now, currently, that Muppet is a whatnot. Next season, we're going to see that Muppet as Bobby Benson, who is going to be the band leader of a bunch of babies. And that's a lot of bees that I'm going to have to make sure I'm not popping when I edit this. But Bobby Benson, he's not going to show up as Bobby Benson until season three. I just wanted to point it out that this is kind of his first appearance because he looks... It, it, it is the same puppet, and he looks just like him. Just he, he doesn't have a name yet, and he's not a character yet. But he does show up as a musician in this. Kind of like how Dr. Strangepork throughout the whole first season. That puppet was there, but he wasn't Dr. Strangepork until season two. This was a nice little way to close it out. Felt in, in line with what Lou had been doing on the show. And the Mayhem do get a workout this week, don't they? I would call this episode a treat. Like, it was just a really, really nice... And he could skate. And he can skate. Skating circles around Fozzie, trying to make him feel better. Yeah, at the end, uh, Kermit says goodnight, and then Lou skates in, and Fozzie skates in. I think someone else skates by, then Scooter skate in. Like, somebody, like, a couple of them are all of a sudden, everybody, everybody is skating fool now. Yeah, I thought he was a really good, a really good guest star, combined with some very funny sketches. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Nick, have you ever heard of Cleo Lane? That's not the uh, the TV psychic, right? You have questions. I have the answers. No, it's not Miss Cleo. No, Cleo Lane. I know you know who she is now, or at least I know you've seen her now. I didn't know anything about this woman. This woman with an amazing voice. I was about to say, I I had no concept of her, but 
She does. She has an amazing voice. Dame Cleo Lane was born Clementine Dinah Bullock on October 28th, which is my wedding anniversary, 1927, which is not the year I got married, in Uxbridge, England, which is a West London suburb. Her parents weren't married. Her father was a black Jamaican laborer and like busker. And her mom was, according to Wikipedia, quote, a white English farmer's daughter from Wilshire. Their family moved around England a lot when she was young. She attended Featherstone Primary School. And at the same time, her mother sent her for dancing and acting lessons as well. After high school, Clem worked as a hairdresser, a hat trimmer, a librarian, and worked at a pawn shop. In 1946, she married George Landridge, who was a roof tiler, and they had a son, Stuart, but they would divorce after 11 years. Despite her early interest in performing, she didn't actually take up singing professionally until she was in her mid-twenties. At 24, she auditioned for The Dankworth Seven, which is the backing group for jazz musician and composer. His last film score actually was uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the Shane uh, Black movie, and band leader John Dankworth. Uh, so she joined the Dankworth uh, Seven, and, his, and he also had the, the John Dankworth Orchestra as well that he toured with. He was just, you know, he was a band leader guy. And they got married the next year, and they will end up having a son and a daughter who are both musicians, Alec, who is a, who is a jazz bassist, and Jackie, who is a singer. Cleo hit the stage in the 50s, uh, mostly at London's Royal Court Theatre. She appeared in the play Valmouth in 59, and uh, in a, a Time to Laugh with Harold and Maud star Ruth Gordon in 1962. And in 68, landed the role of Julie in the 1971 uh, Adelphi Theatre production of Showboat. She had two major recording successes around this time. She had a song called You'll Answer to Me, which reached the British Top 10 in 1961. Your reputation follows you to town. The hearts you have broken are scattered all around. And, uh, and then in 64, she and her husband released a record called Shakespeare and All That Jazz. And I couldn't find that much about it. I'm guessing it's just Shakespeare done to jazz. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? How art more lovely and more temperate? Rough wings to shake the darling buds of May. And summer's moon. Uh, she started touring for real in the 70s, first in Australia, and then other places in Europe, and then finally she got to the States, where she very early on played Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall. She toured back and forth across the U.S. and Canada, uh, headed back to the U.K. in 77 to go play with some puppets, as we know, and snagged her first Grammy nomination in 1983 for a live album recording she did of one of her concerts at Carnegie. She didn't leave the stage, though. She did Sondheim's A Little Night Music and Franz Lahar's The Merry Widow at the Michigan Opera. In 1980, she started Colette, which is a musical written by her husband. She was nominated for a Tony for playing Princess Puffer, which sounds like and probably is the name of a My Little Pony character, but not in this case. Uh, it, but this was in the play The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And in 89, she played the witch in the first U.S. touring production of Into the Woods. People make mistakes. Thinking they're alone. 
In the late 90s, her concerts sold out across the globe, uh, usually supported by Dankworth and his orchestra. She released two books, uh, one called Cleo in 94, and one called You Can Sing If You Want To, three years later. She became a Dame Commander of the British Empire in 1997. Uh, and a few years later, Dankworth himself was uh, made a Knight Bachelor, making him Sir John. I don't know, man. We've had several of these, like guests come on who have been knighted or lords or sirs or dames and there's this whole like hierarchy of like who's a what so a knight bachelor is just i think it's like the lowest level of a knight um it does not mean that he'll be competing for the affections of 30 women on network television they were one of the few couples in history actually where partners both held titles in their own right and they were most definitely the only jazz couple in the only couple in the history of jazz music Sir John Dankworth died in February of 2010 hours before a planned concert in England he had been sick for several months and passed away just hours before. Cleo ended up going on in his place that night, backed up by her very recently late husband's band, and didn't reveal his death to the crowd until the end of the show. This made news and even landed her on the cover of the London Times, but this was like a big deal. This is show business people, right? Show must go on. Cleo would end up stepping in for John a few more times as she didn't want to cancel any of his scheduled performances and she even headlined a festival or two. In 2010, she released the album Jazz Matters, her final collaboration with John and his band based on material Dankworth had written, obviously before his death. And that's kind of all I got on her. She was known for her, her interpretive scat style singing, as well as her insane nearly four octave vocal range. Derek Jewell of the Sunday Times said that she was quite simply the best singer in the world. Is she still around? Yeah, she's still alive. She's 93. She has a Grammy, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the U.S. recording industry, several other career awards, is an honorary fellow at the University of Cambridge has honorary doctorates from at least five different universities, and has a street in Adelaide, South Australia, named after her. No mention of movies, no mentions of television. She did some stage work, but mostly was just a, a pop star and a jazz star. The first question I wanted to ask you before we get into it is, did she sound British when she sang? Not when she sang. No. You don't expect a British accent to come out of that woman if you hear her sing first. I think I made it about... A quarter to maybe half of the way into the show before I realized that she was British. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. It's kind of subtle. Like, her father was Jamaican and her mother was white. There's just this British, I don't know for sure, but it almost felt like she had, like, kind of, her voice had kind of adapted a little bit to fit the genre of music she was in. Like, not when she's singing, but when she's talking, because she doesn't always come across British when she's talking either. I've been accused of doing something like that when I talk to different groups of people, and it's not a conscious thing either. It's just. I grew up on the East Coast. I went to high school in Southern California, and then I came up to the city, and I've met people from different walks in between. But it's not like a an affected, yeah. conscientious, like, I need to use this particular vocabulary thing. It just, sometimes that, that shift just hits. Muppet Show number 216 with special guest Cleo Lane, produced November 8th through 10th, 1977. Premiered in uh, January in the UK, but not till May in uh, the US. And directed, you know, last one was Phil Casson, so this one's Peter Harris. I'm going to go ahead and call this one out now. There is a first appearance in this. Emily Bear. Emily Bear is Fozzie the Bear's mom. She shows up in this episode. She doesn't speak. I think she's just the old, maybe just the old Fozzie puppet with a wig on. I can't tell, but. She's, she's got a line at the end of the episode, I think. No, she doesn't. No, she's, she's asleep at the end of the episode. Oh. She doesn't really talk in it. She's going to show up in, I think, only one other episode of The Muppet Show. But she is a huge part of A Muppet Family Christmas, which we will get to eventually, which is, in my opinion, the best Muppet Christmas special. Ta-da! Merry Christmas! Son! Mom! Ah! 
So she has a big part in that. So she's not really a character in this, although the backstage story does revolve around her. So she is important. So like the point of Emily Bear, she will eventually be played by Jerry Nelson. Oh, and this episode, by the way, has one of those Disney Plus content warnings. As we go along, we'll try to figure out why. But it does have a cultural insensitivity content warning on this particular episode. Right off the bat, um, here's a possibility for the warning. Scooter calls on Cleo, and Cleo's just nervous because she hopes the Muppets are going to like her. And an animal just like shows out of nowhere and starts mauling her, telling her that he loves her. Quite aggressively. Love, Cleo Lane! Love! Hey! Hate me a little, will you? Yeah, this, uh... I, I did like, though, she, he's like, love, love, and she's like, can I get a little hate? <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line you know i mean it's not it's not sexual it's not gross it's just you know. there's still a, a transgression of a boundary but yeah yeah like it in context it wasn't it's pretty tame animal's very excited that she's on the show tonight is all we have the the muppet show theme then at the end when gonzo comes out to blow his horn it's the old puppet why i have i wasn't able to find it but it's the old puppet it's the first season puppet it can't be a leftover because if it was a leftover he would be swinging a gong i i don't know it's weird that every other time just because he he flies off doesn't he the trumpet flies away and he says come back here like you know gonzo doesn't do anything like it doesn't feel like they mess up the puppet it was just really weird all of a sudden uh my wife noticed it she was like that's not gonzo and i'm like season one gonzo and now that we've had season two gonzo we can tell so kermit comes out of course to introduce the show fozzy pushes his way on the stage welcome to the muppet show hey with us tonight is one of the truly great stars thank you thank you you are too kind <laughs> I, am, I am not kind and you are not the star come and try to talk to you for a second what see what my mother is in the audience yeah. hi ma i'm not talking about you you idiot fozzy wants to get on stage because his ma is in the audience now his mom's up in the balcony she's in the cheap seats but uh, his, his mother is in the audience watching. And so the backstage story is going to be Fozzie desperately wanting, wanting to get on stage so that his mom will keep sending him money for rent, is my guess. Um, see, Ma, I'm doing stuff. Just six more months. But uh, And we get a couple of shots of Emily Bear in the crowd waving. Emily Bear has very blue eyes. Very, very blue eyes. Yes. Depending on how much older she's supposed to be. <laughs> right. Like, I wasn't sure she had cataracts on her eyes, which I was wondering if it would be part of, like, the bit of the shows that she couldn't see it anyway. Right, yeah. No, they never went to that. Uh, I just think it's, uh, hey, what do we got What do we, what do we? we got to put on this bear? And she's not, so she's not really a character in this. She's more just a visual gag. Mm-hmm. So Fozzie's going to keep pushing to try to get on stage. But before that, we gotta do, we've got a limbo, Nick. Limbo. Everybody limbo. This caught me off guard because I, I it's it's set up for the, the first part of the backstage story, but it didn't really feel like a bit. With the limbo? Yeah. Well, yeah, the limbo's the number. Mm-hmm. They come out and uh, the blue freckle, green freckle, and Baskerville do a limbo number. You know, I don't know if you remember this. There was a time where that like limbo was a big thing. <laughs> For a hot minute, where like I mean, it's you know the the game. It's a game, and of course it originated. Originated. Um, it was based on kind of traditional games played in like Trinidad and, and the Caribbean and stuff. And the music is usually flavored to kind of go that way, you know. And I think my daughter just had a limbo contest at school like last week. So it's still yes. something people do. But it became like it was. It became a cultural touchstone sometime around the '80s, which is very strange to me but it did but then a ringer comes in the frog comes in kermit comes in dressed up like like a pirate or something like what is he wearing hey, 
actually, he's kind of dressed like his character from the uh, Muppet Treasure Island, where he's playing like the captain of a ship, pirate ship. And Kermit limbos, you know, they all do their little limbo, get under the, the bar. And then Kermit gets under his under his bar, which is super low, by squishing himself. Just like Jim, just retracting his, his face down and just scrunch, crunching himself down. And he walks right under it. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> it, did seem, <laughs> it did seem like a good idea at the time. Problem is, he seems to get stuck. And uh, he comes waddling off stage, and then Kermit, it's a great line, great line where Fozzie's like, uh, Kermit, I'm down here. Oh, Kermit. Kermit, Kermit, do you realize that my mother is in the audience tonight, and I wasn't even in the opening number? I don't care. Like, like, what do you, do you not notice, Bear, that I'm in pain? Do you not notice? Well, why not? Because I'm all scrunched up. You are squunched up. <laughs> hey, hey, but Kermit, you see, my mother... Fozzie, would you unscrunch me? Oh, yes, sir, yes, Fozzie is trying really, really hard to make sure that the bear gets on. He pulls a Naomi. Oh, God. But, uh, yeah, because Kermit comes out to introduce him, and then Fozzie runs out and shoves Kermit off the stage. <laughs> Just takes Gina Gershon down the stairs. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a lady with a truly remarkable voice. Kermit, Kermit, quick, look up there! Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Miss Cleo Lay! The Muppet Showgirls crossover is something that I, I don't think I'd be able to make it through. I guess it would just be Meet the Feebles? I haven't actually seen that, though. Yeah, oh, we're gonna watch it for a bonus episode. Oh, okay. We're definitely going to watch Meet the Feebles for a bonus episode. We're going to watch Meet the Feebles, and we're going to watch uh, Happy Time Murders. Mm-hmm. So then Cleo comes out, sings a song you've probably heard before. Uh, it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. Mm-hmm. Again, she's backed by the mayhem. This this number uses some like very kind of seventies split screen effects mm-hmm. to kind of jazz it up a little bit. The song, of course, it's a it's a classic. It's mostly known as like a Duke Ellington song from like the thirties. I found online that the um, Ellington's nineteen thirty two recording of it was was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It gives me great pleasure to be appearing here with Doctor Teeth and the Electric Mayhem Orchestra. And she just does a pretty kind of laid back version of It Don't Mean a Thing, but then she starts introducing the band members. Kind of like, uh, you know, when you're, if you're at a concert and the lead singer's like, hey, give it up for my band, and kind of introduces them one at a time, right? She's doing that. The man on saxophone, Zoom! She, she does, she's a little reticent to introduce Animal because of her experience with him earlier. Well, she, she doesn't want to become a, a target of focus. But Floyd assures her that, don't worry, we nail him, was that we glue him to the bandstand, mm. or nail him to the bandstand, whatever it was. But the craziest thing is she turns to Zoot, and she, you know, like, she turns to each one, and they get a little line, and she goes, okay, for the worst of all, Zoot. And Zoot says, and I quote, yeah, it is written, a zebra and a geranium should never use the same toothbrush. <laughs> I looked it up. It's not Deuteronomy, so it's not biblical. I assume maybe it was in that list of things you can't do. Not in there. Drugs? Likely, yeah. Yeah, okay. A zebra and a geranium shall not use the same toothbrush. That's drugs, man. 
I've actually heard this one, but we've we've talked about her voice, and I have a hard time describing it. If I were to say there were something approaching an ethereal quality, it would make it seem like I was talking about Bjork or Enya, and that's not it at all. There's or Judy Collins. Like you, you said that she's got a four octave range. She can go real high. She's got a very powerful voice, but it's not like it's not hammering any of the notes. No, she uses it differently. Yeah, it's a very subtle. She was also known for this kind of interpretive but also just kind of uh she's more about i think she's more about getting in there playing around with the sounds and the words Mm -hmm. as opposed to hitting all the proper notes because she knows she can do that when she wants to to me, what I saw was, I saw, you know, she, she's considered mostly kind of a jazz musician, right? And mm-hmm. what I saw in the way she sings, and I may be full of it because I don't know much about music uh, in this way, but to me, it felt like she was playing around inside the song. I guarantee if she sang the song again, she wouldn't sing it the same way. I agree with that. Absolutely. She's attacking every word or every line, whatever it is, in a fresh way, in a way that a jazz musician, you know, I mean, John Coltrane only played like 12 things. <laughs> Right. Or like however many tracks there are. All, if you go back, if you go buy a stack of classic jazz records, they all have straight no chaser on them. Where the jazz comes in is is uh, in the interpretation and how you approach each note and the, the new things that you find in it. I think that's what she does in this. As I sound like that uh, hip white guy talking about jazz. As long as you're not wearing a beret. No, <laughs> I don't own a beret. You know what? You get to college and uh, as we all know, like when you get to college, your musical tastes open up a little bit. Or at least some people do. And I got to college and yeah, my musical taste opened up. Like I've probably said on here before, I listened to Dave Matthews about six months, but that was just because of a girl. Yeah, not that happens. You know, I started listening to different types of music and I did what I thought I needed to do as a, as a mature, sophisticated art school person was uh, start listening to jazz music, you know? So I learned a little bit about it. Even within that, there are a lot of different subgenres of jazz. Like I, yeah. I love jazz in general, but even then... It feels weird. It makes sense to throw it all under the same umbrella, but there's a lot of variation in there. Yeah, I think it's more the spirit people are talking about. Yeah. All right, so things are going to get really funny and probably a little problematic here. Just a bit. So Fozzie really wants to get on stage, as we said. I'm guessing his mommy didn't give him enough hugs or something when he was a cub, and so he's he's just desperate for his mom's approval. And uh, so he says, hey, can I be in the next sketch? And Kermit's like, no. It's pigs in space. He's like, why can't I be in pigs in space? He's like, because you're not a pig. And fortuitously, as Kermit goes off to introduce pigs in space, Piggy pops her head out of her dressing room and says, Will somebody please bring me my pigs in space costume? Now, this joke is so set up that my kids were way ahead of it. As soon as she said, where's my costume? And Fozzie looks at the camera, my daughters lost it. I don't know how they knew. They knew. Deep down, they knew the next thing they were going to see was Fozzie (laughs) dressed up as Miss Piggy. Featuring the Neanderthalic Captain Link Hogthrob. The overdeveloped first mate, Miss Piggy. And the tridecophobic Dr. Julius Strangeport. As we left our heroes last week, Captain Hogthrob had just ordered the Swine Trek's biannual inspection. So we go into the Swine Trek and we get our normal introduction 
on Pigs in Space, but it's only Link and Strange Pork on deck, and Link wants to do an inspection of the crew, because remember, there is, a, there is a crew on the Swine Trek, although we find out in this episode it's quite small. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, bring up all the crew, <laughs> so... All hogs on deck! All hogs on deck! Sweet! Peek, peek, peek! <laughs> That's the other possible episode title. Two pigs come in, which I guess are the other two crew members. And Fozzie comes in wearing Piggy's outfit with a blonde wig. Discuss. First of all, how how turned on were you? That's a weird question to ask. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. But like, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at Link. And Link is entirely a blowhard, but also he could be possessed of a certain amount of obfuscating stupidity. What does that mean? You're just saying he's dumb? I'm saying he's dumb, but sometimes he knows he can get away with things if he plays dumb. That's fair. But I think that Link was very much aware that Fozzie was cutting in for Piggy. And moreover, he was happy about it. Or he was trolling, one of the two. Piggy does tend to not treat him very well. But he never comes on to Piggy this strong. That that's what's weird. Yeah. So so they do the little thing, and he tells everybody to get back to work or whatever. But he says, "No, you stay first, mate, Piggy." And he says, "Come over here." And he like kind of lures her off so they're alone. And then he just looks at her and goes, "Look deep into my eyes." Yes, sir. Give us a little kiss, pork chop. I don't think there's ever been romance between them. I think Piggy's like tried to flirt with him to get her way before. Mm-hmm. Then it turns into Benny Hill. With Link chasing Fozzie around the swine trek, still with the blonde wig on, it turns into an episode of the British show Benny Hill. Doesn't really stop there, though. Yeah, well, okay, but before we get to that, is this a problem? I mean, is this... You wouldn't do it this way today. This would not be made today. For the time, it didn't... In it being a problem as opposed to being not a problem, it didn't feel hateful. No, not at all. Which, again, doesn't necessarily make something okay, but... I think in those spaces where you are xenophobic or you're very dismissive of someone for belonging to... Oh, yeah, it's nothing like that. Yeah. Have you ever seen Some Like It Hot? No. Okay, so Some Like It Hot is the Billy Wilder film starring uh, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, and Marilyn Monroe. It is one of, if not the funniest movie ever made. Hmm. It it usually ranks pretty high in, in any list of greatest comedies of all time, and it earns it, by the way. It is freaking hysterical. There is a good deal of comedy made in the movie about these men who are dressing up as women. That's just a genre of comedy. <laughs> it's it's a it's a fairly like classic genre of comedy is cross dressing. I mean, Miss Doubtfire ran on. Right. There's a lot more to Miss Doubtfire than that. There's a yes. a heady drama component. You're still getting a decent amount of humor out of the fact that it's Robin Williams dressed up like an old lady, and it's like very a very campy. It's a good performance actually by him. This type of humor. This kind of cross-dressing humor, whether you put it in the category of being kind of not anti-trans, but insensitive to trans people, whether you put it in the terms of being insensitive to think it maybe it makes uh, turns it into like a gay panic type situation. There are all of those elements, you know. Mm-hmm. There's also just, but like you said, like it's not hateful. It's just up until I'd say fairly recently, that was an avenue of comedy that people went down a lot. Mm-hmm. Right or wrong. They're not making fun of women. They're not making fun of men. They're not making fun of trans people. They're having these two idiot puppets run around a thing. Mm-hmm. Link's kind of physical pursuing of her is something that was also acceptable and common at the time that I find is less okay mm-hmm. now that you definitely wouldn't do. It's weird to suss these things out because it's just like if I detach if, if I detach my brain from the world, it feels so innocuous yeah, and just fun and silly. However, I am also not someone who fits into any of the categories that could possibly have a problem with it, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I can't, I can't make that call for anybody else, nor would I want to. I'm gonna level with you, we can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Doesn't matter. I smoke, I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Oh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. And then uh, backstage, it, like you said, it keeps going backstage, and Piggy is looking for Fozzie. Okay, where is Fozzie? Hmm? How dare he steal my Wait costume? I'll chop him in a bear burger. And then Link chases Fozzie in, and Fozzie, the only way to get Link to stop chasing him is to take the wig off. But then he goes, imposter! And he starts chasing him because he's an imposter now. <laughs> is he upset that he's impersonating a pig? Or is he upset that he's impersonating a lady? Does he just know the word imposter and so yells it over and over again because his vocabulary is very limited? One of the last scenes in Light Chicks. Terry <laughs> Crews. Here's, uh, here, here they come. Here's the Waynes brothers. They're, yeah, where the Waynes brothers uh, reveal that they're not actually women. And he's mostly <laughs> upset that they're not white. <laughs> I've never seen white chicks, but that's that's actually that's a that's funny. It's it has its moments. Baby, we all got secrets. That's okay. Are you telling me that you are not Yeah, I'm not a woman. White? Oh the, the deception! Then they all four of them end up in the screen. They're all arguing, and somehow Fozzie gets Link and Piggy to get angry at Kermit, <laughs> even though Kermit had nothing to do with this. <laughs> and he totally, they totally end up running interference so that Fozzie can go back out on stage. <laughs> well, they yell at Kermit for something Kermit did not do. Fozzie hasn't had a chance to change. He's still wearing Piggy's pig in space. Oh yeah, no, he's he's still wearing he's still wearing the first mate Piggy costume. Absolutely. And this being the seventies, of course. And even earlier, of course, in Star Trek, the women on the bridge still had to have to wear skirts. Mm-hmm. So Fozzie comes back out of the stage, having thrown Kermit under the bus that isn't even his bus. Hiya, hiya, hiya. Hi, Ma. It looks like it's just you and me for the rest of the evening, folks. Ah, thought I'd come out and tell a few jokes, sing a few songs. Fozzie, will you get off the stage? Uh, that too, yes. yes. Uh, let's see, now, where was I? <clears throat> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's very seldom that we have a guest puppeteer on the show. In fact, between you and me, it's rare that we have any puppeteers on the show. <laughs> so it gives me great pleasure to introduce a very talented young man, Mr. Bruce Schwartz. The second time we've seen this, a guest puppeteer. So this was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I wrote down, for, first before we start, I wrote down, is Nick going to say Nightmare Fuel? Go ahead. Surprisingly... I mean, it could be, but no. Like, I, I actually thought it was generally well done, but there's... Well, I'll, I'll let you give it a proper introduction before I go into this, I should say. You know, Jim did this once before with the uh, Shadow Puppets, right, in the first season. Mm-hmm. Bruce Schwartz uh, is a um, puppeteer. He would eventually go on to do some additional puppetry on the M- Muppet movie, uh, and would be the focus of one of Jim's World of Puppetry uh, little documentary specials he would mm-hmm. do. He was also a mimic, a storyteller, and a clown. He performed the puppets in The Double Life of Veronique, which is a movie by one of, a, one of the great Polish filmmakers. Um, a really great film. He's currently retired, and he owns 
manages and teaches in a yoga studio in Pasadena. And when I told that to my wife, she said, yeah, that makes sense. The reason why he, you know, and what he's using is a bunraku puppet. It's a, that's the, bunraku is a former traditional Japanese puppet theater founded in the 17th century. As you can see with the dolls that he's using, with the, the puppets he's using, usually they're done a little more like three people running them, but he liked to operate in plain sight. That's why he's he's moving it with his hands and stuff. He, he Part of his act sometimes was to operate in plain sight for you to see him, but still try to create the illusion. He's phenomenal at what he does. The thing about these Bunrakus that I looked up that was crazy is that in the national, it's it's big in China, right? It's one of the, you know, so in the Chinese National Theater, in their puppetry division, if you were working in Bunraku, you would have to train for 10 years doing the feet. Then you would get 10 years on the hands. Then you would have to do 10 years on the head of a secondary character. And only after 30 years of that were you given the chance to operate the head of a main character. That's pretty intense. But again, we are talking about the People's Republic of China. They do do intense pretty well. Bruce stands up there with this, I guess uh, we call it a ballerina puppet. She's a ballerina. We we see a lot of pointing of the feet. And he just does a little dance with her. So it it did throw me off to see him a little bit. Like, I I don't remember where I heard it, but there's that whole adage of... uh, if you go to see a play, you're not supposed to see any of the actors before the show starts because it sort of messes with the illusion. Uh, but I was also watching this with my roommate, and he kept comparing the guy to Lindsay Buckingham from uh, Fleetwood Mac, and I can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not inaccurate. We've seen things like this before, where everyone's wearing completely black, yeah. and your focus is on the Muppet it's, or the puppet itself. Yeah. But the thing about this is, I don't know enough about the specific form and maybe this is part of the central conceit it does seem like rather than the puppet being the star he is the star and it's not like a ventriloquism type of setup where they're sharing the thing he wants you to see the hand of the performer in this case yeah i I think that's that's true i mean he that's not traditional for this type of puppetry i think part of his aesthetic from what i read and i'll admit i didn't do a deep dive but i read a little bit about him is i believe that part of the aesthetic is yeah seeing him is watching him manipulate the puppet. He is part of the show. I don't know f- to what end because I'm not him. <laughs> part of he he wants you to understand that, that there's a, someone here manipulating this person, and and I think he's trying to. But I think he also seems to be in this case. He's working with a, a, a female puppet, so he's kind of. I mean, and, and and I think he does a really good job of, for lack of a better term, like you know, channeling his feminine energy, feminine energy into the puppet. Mm-hmm. Part of the entertainment is watching him do it, or is it? This is going to be so good, you're not even going to. Rem- you're you're going to see my hands, but you're going to stop seeing them. It could be a little bit of either, and I I think it could just be something that's intentional, not for me. But there was that part of me that was taken out of it by seeing him. I thought it was kind of cool. I liked, you know, I'm a big fan of like stop motion animation and stuff, so I really liked watching him manipulate the puppet, hmm. the subtle gestures. He was so incredibly precise. He was. The manipulation of the puppet is the the ends, you know, uh, yeah. and the means. It's there's no there's no other end. There's no it's not driving towards anything. You're supposed to just be watching the manipulation of the puppet and see how well he does it. My four year old looked at me, and goes, "This is so beautiful," which I thought was very sweet. His performances are they they are both great, but there's a I want to say like a delicate quality to them, and maybe it's just the way that the the puppets are constructed. They do kind of look like China dolls. Yeah. It's interesting that he's going to come back. He gets two numbers. Uh, you know, it's almost like he has two guests. They have two guests this week. 
if we ever get to watch the um, Jim Henson World of Puppetry documentaries, you know, he'll, we'll see him again. And I'm going to go back. I haven't watched Double Life of Veronique in a very long time, but uh, I own it on Blu-ray and I'm totally going to watch it now just to find the puppet sequences. Plus, it's just a great movie. But looking at him, does it surprise you he owns a yoga studio in Pasadena? Absolutely not. He was probably very crushed after Stevie Nicks left. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It's because Stevie Nicks is awesome. So we go to our UK spot. Now, okay, yes, I want to point this out. It's three dogs. One of them, we know, is Rolf the dog. One of them, we also know, is Baskerville the Hound, played by, of course, Jerry Nelson. There's also another dog called Afghan Hound. Now, Afghan Hound, we missed her last week uh, as a new character. Technically, the premiere of this puppet was a singing background for Elton John. And it's mostly going to be used as a background character. And the, but in the handful of times the character does speak or has a large role, it will be performed and voiced by Louise Gold. And they sing a song called... I keep saying it, man. They've gotten so literal with this UK spot idea. It's, it's downright colonial, but... <laughs> it is. Uh, they sing a song called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Here we go now. In tropical climes or certain times of day When all the citizens retire to take their clothes off and perspire It's one of those rules that the greatest fools obey Because the sun is far too sultry And one must avoid its ultraviolet Which was actually written by Noel Coward for one of his musical reviews back in the 30s. Uh, he actually wrote it as he drove from Hanoi to Shanghai in 1931. First, he was there for some reason, and on the drive, he ended up writing the song. It's kind of like a... Like a drinking song? Like a pub song? I could see that, yeah. But, like, it mostly just sort of runs on stereotypes? I think this is where the warning Likely, is yeah. actually for. Were any of them super offensive? It, it talks about people from around the world, characters for people around the world, and, yeah, and it, like, it makes some stereotypes from some people from places that are not English and that are not white. But I don't remember, I didn't catch any of them that I thought were particularly offensive. I was mostly just sort of cut off by the uh, rolling generalizations, but it's yeah. like if you were to ask me what one of the specific stereotypes was, I wouldn't be able to tell you. It was weird because we we finished watching that number and I go, oh, that was probably why they changed the, that's probably why the warning was there. And then I thought and I was like, what would they say? <laughs> like I got the impression that that's what it was, but I couldn't nail it down. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's just the general principle of it of it being a series of just them rattling off a series of stereotypes mm -hmm. this song's weird man just a bit yeah baskerville getting way more screen time than i thought he would did not remember him as a muppet like from growing up i did not remember baskerville at all and i'm i know i'm more hyper aware of him because we watched him kind of come into being with the purina commercials so we know more about his history but still wait in this first two seasons like I could have told you before we started this show who Baskerville was. Maybe he vanishes after, like, season two, and I don't know, but he just, like... There's a good chance that he disappears at one point and we don't see him until the Muppet movie. It's just weird to me. I just, every time he shows up, I'm like, another Baskerville sketch? I thought he was a... but, you know, he's still around. So then uh, we go backstage again, and <laughs> it's a very funny beat where Fozzie's like, Kermit, now you're going to introduce me, right? Uh, no. But Kermit, my mother is in the audience. When do I go on? Uh, when do you go on? You've already been in all the introductions, pigs in space, and everything else. What do you want, star billing? Dude, you've been on all night. What do you want, top billing? Fozzie's okay with that idea. Yeah, everything about the way that Fozzie's acting here is like a kid that's been put in time out and thinks that they've been there long enough and decides to tell their parent that they've been there long enough. Like, I've been good, I've been here long enough, can I get off of time out? The chef is up next in my favorite number of the episode. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> 
We start off with the chef uh, and a normal Swedish chef bit. Yeah, he's going to make a, uh, a chef salad or something, right? Hmm. But then Cleo Lane steps in and they sing a song together instead. And they sing You're Just in Love, which is an Irving Berlin song from 1950. We've actually heard this song before. Uncle Deadly and Ethel Merman sang a little snippet of it during that uh, Broadway montage, you remember, with the mirror? Mm-hmm. Actually, Rolf and Jimmy Dean sang a little bit of it in six, back in 63. But the joy of this, completely, the, the, uh, 99% of the joy of this number it has nothing to do with Cleo Lane. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Irving Berlin. It's the Swedish chef singing. But it's it's the call and response aspect of it too, though. Because oh, yes. it is the interplay. It's I I really like the everything about the energy in this, and it's so funny. She seems like she's having such a good time. It's so funny, Nick. Jim and Frank are just murdering, murdering this. Frank is having such a good time with the hands. You can tell the hands are going nuts. Not not in a way that draws attention. Not in a way that feels unnatural. He's just nailing it. And Jim with the performance and 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 the singing. I know it's a he's singing from a track, but like it's so funny. This was your highlight too. Yeah, I this this is just a joy to watch. Like this, yeah. There's a a reel of clips that from the season that I'm just like the windmills in my of my mind. I've probably rewatched a few times since we initially caught yeah. it, and this is probably going to join the ranks with that. I watched this four or five times today. Mm-hmm. It's really funny to hear him singing, but it's not actually making fun of him singing. Well, there's also with her, and this is something I think is going to be the case, or that was the case with both of our guests for the episodes we've covered this evening. Right. There's a very genuine warmth that they bring with them. Jim and Frank would be able to perform Swedish Chef no matter what, but it brings a different side of it out. And then there's a great beat with Stettler and Waldorf where... Well, I just learned something about the Swedish Chef I didn't know before. What's that? Cooking is the second worst thing he does. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen... Come in, come in. Please, nominee, please. Uh, yes, please. now! Thank you, thank you. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, due to an overwhelming demand... From him, if not from the rest of us. <laughs> Here he is, our own furry funny man, Fozzie Bear! Hey, hey, thank you! Thank You've been up there all night, but sure, Fozzie, it's time for your comedy act. But he does a phrenology bit. Was that still relevant at this point, or was that something that was already outdated? Oh, it was definitely outdated, for sure. This is the other thing I thought could have gotten tagged. Because of all of the unfortunate implications that come with phrenology? Yes, not because of this bit, because this bit has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. The bit's not racist, but phrenology has a racist history. Social Darwinism is a lot of fun for certain people. Horribly, I could not enjoy this scene because all I could think of was Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained, who has a huge, awful, I mean, it's, it's a good scene, but an awful scene about phrenology from a fairly evil white slaveholder. Wasn't there uh, like a bit about phrenology in My Girl? I don't remember. I don't remember My Girl. I was, see, here's the thing. I was a little old. I'm older. So when My Girl came out, I was old enough to watch it once and laugh when Macaulay Culkin died. And that was, that was it. (laughs) I was, 
a cynical little prick. It was a the funeral scene. I thought was really well done. I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it's a nice little movie. I'm sure my girls will enjoy it one day. Like it came out when I was at the age to where there was no way in hell I was going to like that movie. That's not on the movie. I mean, it's it's just a little funny bit of Fozzie feeling up Kermit's head, trying to read his feet. In this, he's he's demonstrating phrenology almost, but it's almost like he's palm reading. It's not like necessarily the science aspect of it that people use, but it's like a it's like trying to tell Kermit's future. I think this is the uh, the phrenology variant of the amateur chiropractor that messes up their friend's neck. And uh, yeah, and then at the end, he hits Kermit with a mallet. I can't read the bumps on your head. You don't have enough bumps on your head. And so he picks up a mallet to try to hit Kermit with him. And Kermit gets him off stage. There's nothing offensive about it. But there is a larger context. Just the word phrenology brings up. If he had never said the word, I probably wouldn't have even noticed. Right. Yeah. If he had just done this bit with like, oh, I'm going to try to read his head. I wouldn't have. I, I might not even hit me. But he calls it phrenology, and I was like, alarms went off in my head. But uh, while Kermit's dealing with Fozzie... Kermit made a comment about him needing a new job soon. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be looking for a new job tomorrow, he says. Yeah. Robin, who uh, has all of his legs still, so apparently he stayed away from the chef, comes out to introduce Cleo Lane for the final number. Uncle Kermit's kind of busy right now, so I don't think he'd mind if I tell you that here now, accompanied by the puppet artistry of Bruce Schwartz, is the lovely Miss Cleo Lane. It's Cleo and Bruce. Yeah, that's true. He does he does introduce Cleo and Bruce, you're correct. Yeah, which is weird. I haven't seen that before. Yeah. Something about the way that this one is is set, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it it reminded me of like those those few seconds leading into the as the world falls down sequence in Labyrinth. Right, I can see that. Like, there's there's no comedic beat to it. There's a I guess like something approaching a, a story arc to it, where you've got right. a couple with one with a man sleeping and the woman sort of doting on him as Cleo sings. But it's a really poignant number. It is. It's kind of sad, I would say, or melancholy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she sings a song called If, which is not the song by Janet Jackson about <laughs> what she would do to you if she was your woman. That would give the scene an entirely different context because that woman is looking down, or that female puppet is looking down at that guy the entire time while he's sleeping. When I read that this song was called If, the first thing I thought about was like, ah. Oh, Let's redo this, but with Janet Jackson. <laughs> uh, my favorite Janet Jackson song. If a picture paints a thousand words, then how can I paint you? The words would never show the you I've come to know. It's a song by a song from 1971. It's actually a contemporary song at the time from the band Bread, rock band at the time, written by um, David Gates, who was, the, I think, the lead singer, lead singer or the guitarist, one of the two. And when my life is running dry, you come and pour yourself on me. If a girl could be two places at one time, I'd be with you tomorrow and today. I didn't mind it. Yeah. 
I normally want something a little more big and explosive for my finale, but I didn't mind it. We had those that sequence of guests who would have that uh, I'm surrounded by Muppets and singing a song at the end of the episode thing. Yeah. And it, it never really seemed to land, but this one is different because it doesn't feel... I, I mean, no there's Muppets. also a, a synthesis aspect to it, too, where we've got two guests and they've been brought together for it, but... It is the two guests converging into one to make one mega guest. But yeah, and so she's got a little stage over her shoulder where they're yeah they're playing out this where Schwartz is playing out this little drama with these uh, two uh, puppets. It, but and at the end, is do they die? I don't think so. I think because it looks went like their sleep. spirits fly. Okay, because their spirits fly away though. I read that as them get, being together in a dream. But oh, I'm, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't hundred percent sure like what the storyline is was there. It's probably pretty open to interpretation. Then you. And I would simply fly away. And then uh, we get to the end, and of course, we all come out to say goodnight, and Cleo, being a very nice person, asks Fozzie how his mom enjoyed the show, and Fozzie goes, hey, Ma, how'd you enjoy the show, and... It put her to sleep. <laughs> she's asleep. <laughs> and she's snoring. These were a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed my several watches through them. Music was mostly really good. The comedy was sharp. Mm-hmm. Real sharp. And, and a couple of guests who, like, I don't think they, like, blow the roof off the place. They just really come in and do what they do and do it well. I think that the default assumption is that a guest needs to be very explosive. But I would argue that both of the ones that we had this week were more potent than anything else. There's a skill set that they they sort of shared that they were able to do very well. And it wasn't done in a way that was very forceful or flashy or anything like that. It just sort of speaks for itself. Next time. Don't have a cow, man. All right, so next week we got a legend. Episode 217 with Miss Julie Andrews. Legend. And I know you've seen The Sound of Music. I have. And I have not. Weird. But there's a lot more to her than that. And then episode 218, J.P. Morgan. And I have no idea who she is. And I'm not looking right now. I'm very excited. I have no idea who she is. I know it's a woman, and I know her... It's probably not her real name. Because it's a play on J.P. Morgan, the investment firm, just like J.P. Gross was. <laughs> Again, check us out on social media. Check out other Muppet podcasts on social media, by the way. Follow uh, Muppet History or follow the Muppet Wiki on Twitter. And, uh, you know, said they've put up a list of uh, uh, other Muppet podcasts. And you know what? The more the merrier, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll be back in a week or two with these uh, next couple episodes. Until then, I am Chad. I'm Nick. And, uh, you know, take care of yourself. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Well, shall we call it a night? Might as well. Certainly wouldn't call it a show. (laughs) 